The opinions expressed on the ACB Media Network are those of the content providers and should not be viewed as an endorsement of any product or service. Nor does it reflect the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. This is Pride Connection, sponsored by BlindLGBTPride.org, otherwise known as BPI, every Tuesday night at 10 p.m. on ACB Media One and shortly after on all your major podcast catchers. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is Lessons in Advocacy from the LGBTQ plus community. I'm Anthony Corona, and I'm here with Debbie Grubb. Hello, everybody. Nice to be here. So, Debbie, this was um, your brainchild. You brought it to BPI, and we thought it was a wonderful idea. So can you recap our first two sessions and what has led us to talking about Bayard tonight? I'd be happy to. From the time I was a very little kid, I guess because of my life, I was very close to people of color because when I was very little, the school for the blind where I went was integrated. And what we all soon realized was we liked the same things. We did the same things. We all had problems with the same math equations or whatever it happened to be. And we saw each other as people. As I grew older, I began to understand the importance of diversity and culture. But what I really saw was that we are people with so much that link us together and the diversity and the culture just add to the beauty or, you know, as the the community says, the BPI community says, the rainbow. And to tell you the truth, I like to think that we're all a part of the rainbow. And so we have had so much anger. And I'm not saying that the anger is not justified, but I was looking to find a way that we could learn from our history, from people of character, strong will, and a desire to do the right thing. And I began to look at the gay history because this community has had such successes. What I love about this community, they will tell you, you know, we fought amongst ourselves too, but we learned some things about organizing and figuring out what had to happen first. So I was looking around and I ran across Bayard Rustin. And he's the kind of man you would love to hug and just say, I'm so glad I know you. His words emanate kindness and inclusion, and caring. And while he has a very had, but you can still see it, a very gentle spirit, he believed fervently in what he believed in. He was a Black man who was gay and openly gay when it was not a good time to be so. He was put into prison for being gay and acting out how he wanted to love. Besides all of that, he believed in nonviolence. 
but he believed that everybody deserved equality of opportunity. So as we have worked in with these shows, the first shows were gay men and women who had made a big difference in moving forward with gay rights in a time when it was very difficult. And our last show, we talked about making good trouble. That yes, we have to stand for what we believe, we have to rock the boat, but how can we do it in a way that is inclusive and that is positive? The final thing I wanna say right now about Bayard is one of the things I admire about him so much. He got into trouble with everybody because when he was working with Dr. King and, and the group, they felt that because he was gay, that he was probably not the best fit to work with them. And um, good old strong Thurman, who we all you know, agreed on disliking him, he started saying all kinds of terrible things about Bayard. And so the group decided, you know, we should have him after all. And this man, without the benefit of computers and smartphones and lots of money, he organized the most successful march on Washington, D.C. that has ever taken place. And he did it in two months. And the final thing is this. He, he had a heart and he had personal desires. But to him, the greater good was the most important thing. And he started to work for Dr. King and the group in 1955. There were some disagreements in like 62. And he was asked to leave and he stepped aside. And in 63, when they asked him to come back, he didn't say, you know, well, you didn't want me then and I don't give a flying flip about you. He came back and he did his thing and he worked with people and he honored people. It is just a most beautiful story. And so I'm going to turn things back to Anthony to say that finally, I, I want the Bayard thing to kind of be before we get into our program on allies during our next show. This is really the high point. This is the ultimate advocate. And he did the right thing and he stood firm, but the greater good was more important than his ego or anything about him. And I admire him more than I can say. Anthony? Yeah. So I definitely admire him for all that you just said. This is the reason I'm doing this series as well, because he represented wanting and not only wanting, but convincing that apart, making and segregating ourselves into all of these little groups was actually a detriment to the advocacy that they were looking to achieve. And he found ways to make the groups understand that working together was the only way that they were going to achieve what they needed to achieve. And he made it happen. And I just think to, you know, some of the advocacy that we want to do in ACB, sometimes it's not a bad thing to reach out to the other groups in our disability community or just to, even in our human community at large and say, we want this, we need this, but we're going to partner because we know it's beyond us. So that's what really, you know, got me jazzed up about doing this. So we pulled together a couple of clips. Basically, this is going to give you an overview of Bayard. It was an NPR produced piece. And he was the 
backbone, the organizer of the march. You know, Dr. King gets, you know, he had a dream and he had a really, really powerful dream. So he gets remembered for that. But somebody had to organize this. And Bayard was was that guy when the year before they didn't want anything to do with him because he was gay. But then all of a sudden a senator, you know, made some remarks and suddenly he was famous and he very graciously went back and planned the march. So let's run this. We'll learn about him and then we'll come back and talk a little bit. For 60 years, Bayard Rustin fought for peace and equal rights, demonstrating, organizing, and protesting in the United States and around the world. In the summer of 1963, he was the main organizer of the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. Speaker after speaker roused a crowd of 250,000, including Martin Luther King Jr. with his seminal I Have a Dream speech. No, we are not satisfied, and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Rustin had less than two months to organize what was the largest demonstration the country had ever seen, and he considered it one of the finest examples of nonviolent protest. As we follow this form of mass action and strategic nonviolence, we will not only put pressure on the government, but we will put pressure on other groups which ought by their nature to be allied with us. Bayard was one of a kind, and his talent was so enormous. Washington, D.C. Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton was a law student in 1963 and a March volunteer. Bayard Rustin was her boss. The great achievement of the March on Washington is that Rustin had to work from the ground up. There had been many marches in the South, many demonstrations in the South, but calling people from all over the country to come to Washington, uh, the capital of the United States, was unheard of. Rustin grew up in Westchester, Pennsylvania. In college, in the 1930s, he joined the Communist Youth League for a few years, attracted by their anti-racist efforts. Then he embraced socialism. He was a gay black man, tall, with high cheekbones, and a gifted singer. He played a bit part in a Broadway musical alongside Paul Robeson. And Rustin often sang for his audiences as he toured the country conducting race relations workshops. Nobody knows my sorrow. Rustin was considered a master organizer, a political intellectual, a pacifist who served time in prison for refusing to register for the draft. He created the first Freedom Rides, challenging segregation on interstate buses, and helped found the Southern Christian Leadership Conference with Dr. King. John D'Amelio, Rustin's biographer, says he was content to remain behind the scenes. I think of it as part of the Quaker heritage that he internalized. You don't push yourself forward. It doesn't matter if you get the credit for it. What is important is this notion of speaking truth to power. Rustin had two strong mentors. A.J. Musty, the head of the pacifist organization The Fellowship for Reconciliation, hired Rustin as a youth secretary to conduct workshops and demonstrations against war and segregation. Rustin's other mentor was A. Philip Randolph, the head of the first predominantly black union, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. Again, John D'Amelio. What Rustin took away from Randolph especially is the recognition that economic issues and racial justice issues 
are completely intertwined. In 1953, Rustin's homosexuality became a public problem after he was found having sex in a parked car with two men. He was arrested on a morals charge. Later, when he was chosen to organize the 1963 march, some civil rights activists objected. In an effort to discredit the march, segregationist Senator Strom Thurmond took to the Senate floor, where he called Rustin a communist, a draft dodger, and a homosexual. Author D'Amelio says, ironically, it became a rallying point for the civil rights leaders. Because no one could appear to be on the side of Strom Thurmond, he created unwittingly the opportunity for Rustin's sexuality to stop being an issue. The march was a success, and at its end, a triumphant Rustin stepped up to the microphone to read the demands that the leaders of the civil rights movement would take to President Kennedy. We demand that segregation be ended in every school district in the year 1963. Congress would go on to pass the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Bill. Rustin wanted to move the civil rights agenda from protesting to politics and to work within the system, blacks and whites together, to create jobs and other opportunities. His effort fell flat, stymied by a more militant generation, and the dominant issue of the times, the Vietnam War. It has split the civil rights movement down the middle. It has caused many white people who were in it to say, That must wait now until we stop Vietnam. In his later years, Bayard Rustin continued to speak out on a variety of fronts, and his personal life also changed. We met uh, on a corner in Times Square. Walter Nagel, Rustin's surviving partner, says in the final years of his life, Rustin became more involved in gay rights. He saw this as another challenge, another barrier that had to be broken down, and it was part of a larger struggle for human rights and for individual freedoms. Or, as Rustin himself would put it, The barometer for judging the character of people in regard to human rights is now those who consider themselves gay, homosexual, lesbian. The judgment as to whether you can trust the future, the social advancement, depending on people, will be judged on where they come out on that question. Mandy Carter, with the National Black Justice Coalition, an LGBT civil rights group, says Bayard Rustin was a visionary, understanding the parallels in the civil rights struggle and the gay rights movement. For me, and for a lot of us who are black and gay and lesbian, bi, trans, who see ourselves as social justice advocates as well, to have this person is such an amazing role model. Carter says there was just no one like him. And she's delighted such a key individual in the civil rights movement is now being recognized with the nation's highest honor. Rustin died in 1987 in New York from a ruptured appendix. He was 75. Cheryl Corley, NPR News. Tell you a little bit about this clip. It is the clip that introduced me to Bayard Rustin. I was looking around and I was so thrilled. This was recorded in 2013 on the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington. And as you can see, Bayard Rustin was a multi-leveled person, but he always cared. Caring was a part of his DNA. And he was gentle, but he was passionate. I know Gabe Gabriel is here, immediate past president of Blind Pride International. I had heard of Bayard 
very tangentially a couple of years ago. I didn't pay much attention. There were other things going on. So I kind of knew who he was, but I, I had no idea how fascinating, how much he accomplished until we, you know, you proposed this series to us. Gabriel, I'm wondering in all of your research and dealings that you've had in the community, had you ever come across Bayard before this? I had actually not so much on the gay or LGBTQ plus activism, but more on the background uh, history with organizing the march in 63 and uh, everything that went down and how, how he actually became famous or got put to the forefront due to the heavy criticism or the or the actually the the bigotry of, of some. The thing about him, too, he was arrested a bunch of times because he was gay. Yes. But the thing that put him in prison was when he would not when he would not go to war and what he in mm -hmm. World War II and what he says later is, had I known that there was such oppression and I could have helped people, I would have gone as an ambulance yeah. driver. He's just an amazing, amazing person because he's imperfect like all of us, but he just cared so much and he put it out there. And the one thing he always said, and I don't want that last quote that he had to be misinterpreted. What he meant was that right at that moment, where you come down on any civil rights issue says how you come down on the whole thing. And he really believed that since so many of us were looking for equality of opportunity, yeah. that if we could come together and work together. The interesting thing is, even at the end of his life, he didn't get everything he wanted because, uh, as I said, the Vietnam War and the, the fact that this whole civil rights thing was then pushed aside and all of that kind of thing. He still kept trying. He never gave up. He never did. So, David, just to uh, complement what you had said earlier, what I, what I admire so much about him is that you can see the consistency of advocacy. He was not an advocate for a specific uh, community. He was an advocate for every community. And like you said, he cared. Not only that, this is a learning opportunity for us to learn how to just find the commonalities and not the differences and then let the commonalities unite us in advocacy. He spent two years in prison because of his refusal to be drafted. Now, back then, we think segregation, it was bad for everybody. Can you imagine how it was in a prison and all that he saw and all that he went through? And yet when he came out, I'm sure he was shaken and bitter. And they say there was a picture of him before he went to prison and one upon his release. It had a profound effect on him, but he found a way to let his anger at what had happened to him, which was so unjust, work to move the cause forward. And that's one of the most important dynamic things about this very extraordinary human being. This is Cheryl. One of the interesting things about him is even when he was in prison, he was advocating. I think he initially was sent to a jail in New York and he, he did some advocacy there and it appeared that it 
irritated the warden. So they sent him to a prison in Kentucky and he went to the prison in Kentucky. And even there, he started advocating for prisoners of both races to be able to be in the rec room together for people to be able to eat together. And he was successful. And and then at some point, um, he really irritated the warden and they put him into solitary confinement. And, well. and that's when it became really, really tough for him. When you approached me, Anthony, I think I was like a lot of people. I heard about him. I knew sort of a little bit about his experience, but like anything else, I, I'm like, oh my gosh, I got to go read. So did a lot of reading and I walked yeah. away thinking, what an amazing man. Not only was he an advocate as an adult, did it as a kid. His community, they had the segregated theater. You know, in high school, he's like, no, this is ridiculous. And he goes and sits in the white section, gets arrested. He just blew my mind because he understood Mahatma Gandhi philosophy. Yeah. And and then he not just did he apply it to, you know, life here in the U.S. So we've got to work on this large issue about racial inequality that exists. But he then did it internationally. He broadened it out as he talked, and he understood that there's this big connection, civil rights, human rights, that it's all sort of the same thing in that, as Debbie said, and as Bayard said, we need to figure out ways of working together. Lots of things impressed me. The fact that he did this all his life and that he did it in a way that his ego wasn't involved. It hurt every time I read that somebody who he trusted and he worked for that they turned on him. Yeah. Right. That that was a gut punch. I mean, those were gut punches. You and know, it the, happened so many times. It wasn't right. like it happened once. It was a succession of times and it had to have gut punched him every time. Like he he never, you know, did what so many people do. Like, I'm not getting my way. I'm picking up my knowledge, my marbles, and I'm leaving. Right. I mean, he understood. He was committed. This yeah. is the thing I want to work on. I love thinking, oh my gosh, one, I've got to read more. And two, I want to find things that he wrote because I think there's sort of knowledge and information there that can help me and I think can help all of us. I read a little snippet of something that he wrote that talked about one way that you get people to sort of break down barriers. Even around race, he, he suggested that one of the things you should do is you bring people together, not necessarily to work on race issues, but to work on some other issue that they're yeah. both concerned about. That's very tangible. <laughs> I can, I can, you know, that makes sense to me. So I would love to be able to read his his writings and sort of his ideas about how to do advocacy. So for me, you know, doing this series tonight is the night that made it all worth it for me because I'm of the mindset that we're great in the way we advocate, but there is so much power in making coalition, in reaching out to others, and maybe taking a few concessions for the greater good. And I think Bayard, every time they asked him to step back, he was willing to hand over, okay, this is what I've done so far. This is what you need to do next, et cetera. Give me a call if you need me kind of thing. And then when they were ready to to bring him back because they needed him to fix all the mistakes that were made, he came back graciously and just picked back up and went back to work. And that's the spirit, you know, we need to advocate. So that's why I'm here tonight. 
this is Gabe again. To me, one of the biggest lessons, never losing sight of the big picture goal. I want to talk to you just a moment. There is a podcast called Through Line, T-H-R-O-U-G-H Line. What is so amazing about it is that it is a picture of diversity. When you hear the young people who've put this together of all races, cultures, beliefs, and they felt that Bayard Rustin, who lived long before they were in the world and probably before their parents were in the world, they thought that this history was something that we could learn from. I wanted you to hear all the people introducing themselves because it creates this beautiful kaleidoscope of the colors and textures of diversity. And so that's why I wanted to have so many clips from this podcast about Bayard Rustin. That's it for this week's show. I'm Randa Abdel Fattah. I'm Ramtin Arablui, and you've been listening to Throughline from NPR. This episode was produced by me and me and Jamie York, Lawrence Wu, Lane Kaplan Levinson, Julie Kane, Victor Ibeez, Parth Shah. Fact checking for this episode was done by Kevin Vocal. Thank you to Walter Nagel for providing us with so much amazing archival material. Thanks also to Beth Donovan, Yolanda Sanguini, and Anya Grunman. Our music was composed by Ramtin and his band, Drop Electric, which includes... Anya Mizani. Sho Fujiwara. Naveed Marvi. And Bryn, run the next clip, please. I'm Rochelle Horowitz, and I was the transportation director of the March on Washington. And also, I assisted Bayard generally during the march. Rochelle, who's white, met Bayard a few years earlier. She'd been inspired to go all in in the movement after working alongside him on a boycott campaign. Bayard, who was smoking about um, eight cigarettes at a time, took the time to either sing with his incredible voice or lecture us on the history of the civil rights movement and of Black people in the United States. Mm. So he had us reading things all the time. Rochelle was just 22 when she joined the march as an organizer and wasn't sure she was the right fit for transportation director. I was the person who on four previous marches had lost my bus. (laughs) I went, I marched, I couldn't find my bus. But she stuck with it for one simple reason because Bayard told me I could do it. I mean, that's mm. all. Well, I, I think what you know is Bayard, some people are so filled with ego that they don't want others to succeed. Can you imagine I could do something because this person told me I could? Here's this young, white, Jewish person, and yet Bayard sees something in her, and he allows her to play a major role in this march because she has the desire and the belief and the passion. And I just think that's so beautiful. Well, I mean, one of the things I learned from some of the readings I did is that Bayard was doing workshops since around, I think, 1929. I mean, in addition to sort of being inspirational, you know, he built relationships with people. Yeah. And because he was a, he was a football uh, player in high school and he was a star in sports, he was a singer, he was a teacher. And he knew people in all of these different realms. You know, when he needed or wanted to work with people, he could reach out. 
But I think he, he, he must have been like a phenomenal leader. I mean, lots of people can be charismatic, but sometimes they can be uncaring about others. But I think he was somebody who, you know, not only was charismatic, but was humble. I think that's another word I heard described with him. He understood what the ultimate goal was, right? And the ultimate goal wasn't for Bayard Rustin to be recognized as the leader of whatever. I mean, he was working towards improving life for people in America, everybody, ultimately, right? And so I think that allowed him to be able to step back and to say, I don't have to be the face of this. What can we take from what Bayard has given us and apply it to our advocacy? Get those hands up and Bernie, run the next clip, please. I was an associate of Dr. Martin Luther King for a number of years. Actually, I'm the person who drew up plans for his Southern Christian Leadership Conference. The relationship was more of, I would say, perhaps as a mentor to a student. I went away and bought several books on the Gandhian technique. And at that point, I became deeply influenced by Gandhi. Bayard, who was 17 years older than King, taught King everything he knew about Gandhi's philosophy and worked to elevate King's profile to a national level. Nonviolence, organized, I should say, organized uh, nonviolent resistance is the most powerful weapon, weapon that oppressed people can use in breaking a loose from the bondage of oppression. The first voice you heard and the voice that was talking about Mahatma Gandhi, that was fired. And then, of course, you all recognize Dr. King's voice. Dr. King was uh, 17 years younger than Byard. Dr. King was a very smart man, but he was the first to say that he learned a lot from Byard. And there's this story when Dr. King began to work in the movement. They were, of course, the four beautiful little girls were killed and, and some other things that had happened in the South. So Dr. King's house was guarded because of his wife and his children and all of that. And Bayard said, you know, you really shouldn't do this because you've got to be out there among and with the people. And Dr. King listened to him. And so it's just a beautiful symbiotic thing that Dr. King, for most of us, is the voice of the March on Washington and so much of the early civil rights work. And yet Martin Luther King, Dr. King learned from this man and the way Bayard taught him, Dr. King was able to keep the best of himself, his gifts, his personality. But Bayard taught him some stuff to help him be more successful at what he was doing. And it was just a beautiful thing. Wouldn't it have been lovely to have been with Bayard? He was just amazing. He could teach without like suffocating somebody. He could assess someone and give them what, how they needed it. Sometimes they needed a friend. Sometimes they needed a father figure. Sometimes they needed a rebel rouser. And he could give them in his version of it, what they needed so that they felt it in their soul as much as they understood it in their brain. I had very peripheral understanding of who Bayard was up until a couple of weeks ago when Debbie brought this all to us. But I did hear his name years ago when Coretta Scott King was speaking about Martin's, you know, idea of, of nonviolent protest. And 
that it was Soul Force, that Soul Force came from Mahatma Gandhi. And where did that intersectionality come? Bayard Rustin introduced that concept. Martin, basically what Coretta was saying was Martin had that feeling inside him, but there was nothing in the Christian religion to point to. And then Bayard pointed him to Mahatma Gandhi, oh, Soul Force. And that's how that all took root. I wanted to summarize in one word what I heard in that uh, clip we just heard. Empowerment. Pretty powerful when you think about it. How much was achieved by the nonviolent protests? How much was achieved by the intellectual pursuit that was pushed? And then you kind of compare it to where we are today. Bayard did not get his ultimate dream of using the political system. Democracy prevailed. The Vietnam War was there. All of these things happened. But what can you and I learn from his ideal of working together, of working within the system, of being a kaleidoscope of color, of diversity in every possible way to come for true equality of opportunity and the necessary hands up to get people on their feet so that they are prepared to avail themselves of the opportunity that is theirs. And so even though Bayard's ultimate dream of working within the political system and working in partnership with people of other races did not come to fruition during his lifetime in the way that he had thought it would, that doesn't mean that we can't learn from it and we can't use it ourselves to figure this thing out. That's what is so beautiful about Bayard. What he wanted, what he believed is still beautiful and vibrant today. Absolutely. And still possible and achievable. So Bryn, let's run the next clip. We walked over, walked on the mall over to the side of the march. Where there was to be a pre-march musical presentation. I remember being there to hear Bobby. We called Bob Dylan Bobby. And John Baez sang, as did Peter, Paul, and Mary. A number of reporters saw Bayard Rustin and moved toward him because at that point, being that early in the morning, there was no evidence of marchers. And they asked Bayard Rustin, in effect, where was the march? Would it still come off? And so, using a British accent, he pulled a piece of paper out of his coat jacket and said, indeed, Gentlemen, everything is on schedule. What they didn't know was that the piece of paper was blank. And an hour later, the marches began coming into Washington, D.C. in historic fashion. We were all very ecstatic because the people were just coming in by throngs. They were singing, they were happy, and we knew it was going to be a success. Fellow Americans, 
We are gathered here in the largest demonstration. We are the advance guard of a massive moral revolution for jobs and freedom. I have the pleasure to present to this great audience young John Lewis. for jobs and freedom. In what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. The first demand is that we have effective civil rights legislation. No and people have asked me often, what was the thing you remember most about the March on Washington? And I always say the crowd. It was unimaginable to see 200,000 people anywhere at that time. Looking out at that crowd from a small town in Mississippi, I have this kind of feeling that that comes up in me, a sense of awe and pride and so on. It feels a certain way, and I still get it. I remember thinking very clearly that they support us. They support us. Bayard had a little bit of a sense of humor. Bayard had created this kind of British accent. And he used it when he thought he needed to come across as scholarly and bookish and with some authority. And he takes this blank piece of paper out and he says, everything's on cue. In one of the stories, some of the people were offended that they were going to make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and serve them to the people. And you have to realize how things were. They were bringing in porta potties. And he said, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches don't spoil. And everyone goes, oh, yes, well, let's make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. I mean, it's just astounding what he was able to do and to instill in others to do. I was blown away by the details he paid attention to when he came to the march. Certainly the peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I'm like, what? But my goodness, thank goodness he did, right? And he had calculations going how many porta potties they would need based upon how many people they were expecting to come. And then at one point, I remember hearing in one of the documentaries, the number had tripled from the week before. And he like started wigging out, like, where are we going to get the border party? (laughs) (laughs) And the other thing that I thought was uh, significant was that he recognized that to keep people safe, they definitely needed people there to be able to do that. But you can't bring in policemen in police uniforms. So he recruited African-American policemen, they said, up and down the East Coast. And then he taught them how to peacefully, peacefully intervene. Pe- right. Yeah. Yep. And how, how to, how to you know, get somebody who's acting up out of the space and get them safely and peacefully to someplace else. Again, I'm really just sort of blown away. But at the same time, totally encouraged because I think they're sort of like, tactics and ideas. And so thank you, Anthony and Debbie, because I'm going to be doing some research. I mean, because I think with the vision, it's important that you also understand how to get to the vision. And that's what he knew. I mean, he knew how to not only have the vision, the long-term sort of goal in mind, but he knew, like, how do we get from where we are now to where we need to be? Lynn Corral. Oh, Lynn <laughs> I know you're you're working on the same topic from a different yeah, angle. So exactly. talk to us, Lynn. <laughs> well, yeah, next week, um, Cheryl gave me a couple of books to read. I'm almost finished with the first one. And the book that I'm reading also talks about Byron Rustin. And 
you know, I just hope people come. It's also going to be two hours next week. And I think, you know, I really appreciate Cheryl for giving the names of these books because, you know, even though I know a lot about it because I lived through it, I think that when we think about the alliances and the fact that Byron was gay and Black, the intersectionality, we were talking about this in the group today too, about intersectionalities between all the all the hats that we all wear. And I think that when we think about somebody who, who is so inspirational, he was in the background, he was in the back seat but he did so much to help other people. My husband used to say, I'm doing this for people who haven't been born yet. And I feel that way too. You know, yeah. when I think about leading, it's to make sure that people coming up learn from me and what I've done in my life and learn what I've learned and can be the kind of leaders that they can be. And we can really help people uh, be who they are. And I just think it's an amazing thing. So I hope that people do join us next week at three o'clock Eastern time for a discussion walking <laughs> side by side um, in hope and struggle. So that's what I'm saying. So thank you so much, Anthony and Cheryl and Sheila and everybody else. Thank you. And, you know, one of the things that it's not pointed out, so it's not part of the consciousness. At that march, there were hundreds, if not thousands of Jews in the mix. There were definitely a lot from the LGBTQ community. It was not unnoticed that Bayard's understanding that other marginalized groups can only strengthen and you know, when you look at the the actual photographs, you can see white, Asian, young, old. It was a complete cross-pollinization of society with a very strong presence of the population that was the most oppressed at that point. Bayard was so instrumental in understanding the multicultural needs of a whole bunch of people that have in common humanity and a desire to be recognized and to live as they choose and to have equality of opportunity and the education and the assistance that they need to fully take advantage of that. We're all fighting for a world that is inclusive of all and a world that lets all of us be fully who we are. So we have another clip. Let's let's do that clip, and then we'll do a couple of finalizing um, wrap-up topics. What is more important to bring about changes in society? Changed individuals or a changed social structure? The answer to that is very simple. Because if you don't start out with individuals who are determined to change the thing, you will never get a political consensus. That was Bayard, by the way. Yeah, that was in his later years. And if you really just break down what he just said, if you don't get the inspiration from a person who feels and needs, then you can't get a movement. Back back to thinking and, and focusing and working with the individual, right? Because it's 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 always bewildered me that we talk about institutions, but institutions, they're not some like off in the sky thing. It's the thing that we individually and then as part of a group that we've created. He's he's so right. I mean, the only way you get that to change is you, you know, you change the individual and hopefully individual change the group and the group change the system. That's like the practical way of thinking about change. It is. And, and, you know, piece of what he was 
I guess, preaching in his, in his manner is that each individual has to give and take. Mm -hmm. There are going to have to be some prices to be paid for the greater good. When you find what your heart latches onto is what is the most needed, you are going to have to make a couple of sacrifices along the way. And without that, that's the humanity piece. If we didn't have that, then it wouldn't matter because we'd all be robots. I'm just in awe that in the annals of history, I didn't know who he was. Basically, I'd I'd heard the name a bunch of times and I understood that he was some, but I didn't know who he was until basically diving in to do this. I think the interesting thing too is that he believed that you could win even if individuals lost. When Mahatma Gandhi, Bayard admired him greatly, but they never got the chance to meet. But after his assassination, Bayard went to India and he talked to many people, some of uh, Mahatma Gandhi's followers. This is the thing, if we don't come away with anything else, we have to come away with. Even though Gandhi was killed in violence, a man who espoused nonviolence, Bayard Reston realized that that didn't negate the power of what this man believed and what he wanted to bring to the world. And even though Bayard in later years did not have the same role, he he began to be more of a gay activist, but he was always an activist for everybody. And he believed that the good and the right, despite who was in charge, would ultimately win. And so although Mr. Rustin has been out of this world since 1987, what he believed and the rightness of it is not negated by his death or by the fact that it hasn't been grasped onto and implemented. And maybe some of us here, one or two people at a time can begin to do this and to learn from it. In the Old Testament scripture, there is a saying about a cord that one strand is easily broken and two strands are not as easy to break, but three strands are unbreakable. And so if we could see ourselves being mindful of our own uniqueness, that the things that make our diversity special, keep all the best of that and revel in it, but put a cord together or a, or a quilt or whatever you want to call it, or a flag or a banner of all of us in our diversity, but in our common humanity and in our common need to be recognized as equals and to have equality of opportunity. And I think that's really the summation of Bayard Rustin. And it is as real and alive and and just passionately beautiful and necessary. And it should light a fire in all of us. I want to share a Bayard anecdote before we go to some hands. There's a another documentary that was done that I, I had privilege to, to watch, thanks to Eric Marcus of Making Gay History, who's our partner in this, this series of conversations. In 1988, uh, 1986, excuse me, a year before he passed away, he was interviewed and the interviewer brought up the HIV AIDS crisis. And at that point, the the public understanding was starting to switch from it was a quote-unquote gay disease to it was a quote-unquote disease of the human population. They asked Bayard something to the effect of, 
you know, will the world at large owe a debt to the gay community for how they treated HIV? And Bayard answered simply, the human race has become quite adept at learning how and when to apologize. Knowing the history and, and having friends and persons that I love that lived throughout all that, I just thought to myself, wow, what a great answer. It says everything that needs to be said in six words. Sheila, is there anyone who'd like to comment on what we've talked about so far? Meryl. All right. Hey, Meryl. Hi. Oh, my God. Cheryl, Anthony, Debbie. I mean, this has been awesome. And I think this dialogue has to be done because if nothing happens and things stay the same, nothing's going to be resolved. And we need to be positive because we've gotten pushback in Maryland about the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee, and it's very upsetting. There's a chapter in the state that is for it and a chapter in the state that is not really for it. And it's very disheartening, but we can't give up. We have to keep on advocating and fighting. I've been asked in, in various forms over the last couple of weeks, uh, I, I was quoted for an interview for the AP and, and a couple of other things. The community at large has come so far and you have marriage equality, et cetera, et cetera. And they just ratified what they ratified, um, you know, as far as the House and the Senate is concerned. Mm -hmm. So, you know, where do you feel? Is it a push and pull? Is it a tug? And, you know, my answer is always the same. The work is never going to be done. No. No, we have to not. understand that people are never going to all be accepting. People are not ever, yeah. never going to be all happy and embracive. And sometimes the pendulum swings. It gets a little bit harder, but it'll swing back as long as there's enough of us that care. And that's kind of where I have to go with things. Thank you so much for listening yeah. to me. No, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Carol, was there anything you wanted to say? before we begin the wrap-up process? Both what you and Anthony said was so beautiful that I don't know that there's anything I can really um, add to that. I suppose what I would say to people is there are books and there are articles. Um, Bard has books. Bookshare has books. And so please, please take the time and add some information about Bayard Rustin to your reading list because he is absolutely somebody we need to know. In the show notes to this, you'll have the link to the Eric Marcus presentation. I also put the links to the through, um, the through presentation NPR. And between those two, you'll get, you're going to want to read one of the books on Bayard if you listen to both of those programs, because the man led such a fascinating life from performing on the Broadway stage to being the driving force who put together the most successful uh, march on Washington to this day. You know, Trump can claim whatever he wants to claim. Um, Bayard and Martin did it a heck of a lot better in 63. But I digress, as I'm known to do. Debbie, since you put this spark and this fire all together, what are some final thoughts from you tonight? I pray every day that I will not be defined by my anger by my disillusionment, when people disappoint me, that I will be more like Bayard and use it as a fire to fuel action toward positivity. And that's what we need to do. That's what Bayard did. 
It's what we all need. There's no escaping that all of us who are in any sort of minority have reason to be angry. But what are we going to do with it? How are we going to use it? And I think instead of burning the house down, uh, and when I say that, I mean figuratively, you know, sniping at each other and saying nasty things and email messages and all that, we should say, okay, this has got to be fixed. But what can we do to fix it? How can we make the passion of our anger fuel the work that needs to be done? And if anybody had a reason to be angry and bitter, it was Bayard Reston. But he, he rose above that and he lived a life that matters. And that is why, finally, I just want to say history is important. We don't live it for some kind of misbegotten nostalgia. You know, like I like to live back in the days when I Love Lucy was on. Not that kind of thing at all. But we learn from it and we say, what can we learn and we will never do? And what can we do, learn to motivate us to build a foundation to do better? Because I bet you if Bayard Rustin were here, he'd say, I want you to do more than me. You can do better. You can move beyond where I was. And so we build, he left us a beautiful foundation. And what are you and I going to do to build on it, to bring unity while recognizing the uniqueness of diversity and cultural identity and sexual identity and all these wonderful things, recognizing that, but being bound by our common humanity and our common need for recognition and acceptance and equality of opportunity and assistance to help us get to where we need to be. Well, I don't think even if I had a week to try, I could say it better than you did. I will just say that agree with everything you just said. And the fact that Bayard understood that reaching out across all of the spaces and expecting and understanding that a good portion of most of those spaces wouldn't come, but extending the invitation and then doing the real work with with those that did accept the invitation made all the difference in the world. And I hope in, in our advocacy going forward, we never let our main priorities go, but we think strategically and say, are there better opportunities or more expedient opportunities by joining the coalition? I think maybe it's time not to be so isolated. And that's my inspiration from Bayard. Cheryl, thank you so much for joining us and for all of your uh, amazing, your thoughts, your your feelings. And, and your, your research. I was yeah. so thrilled. I'll tell you, I had done some of that research and I thought, my goodness, my friend, Cheryl Cummings has done all this and she deserves to speak about it and speak. You did girlfriend. And thank you very much. Thank thank you both for inviting me to talk about this and thanks for um, actually helping me to learn more about Bayard Rustin. He's now one of my heroes. I've got to say Mine that. Too. Mine too. Yeah. Me too. Debbie, I'm, I'm going to ask you to close us out with whatever your final thoughts are and a preview of next month's program. My final thoughts are, let's take what we've learned and tuck it in our hearts, tuck it in our minds, do some research, 
and decide how one step at a time we as individuals can combine and make something happen. Because we've got Cheryl's wonderful multicultural affairs committee. I mean, we can, we can use that as a vehicle if she's of a mind to, and I can't think you wouldn't be, right? I want us to say we have been given some marching orders by one of the finest men who ever breathed air on this planet Earth. I admire him. I admired him from the moment I heard his name and started learning about it. I, I just think that we need to think about this and move forward on the path and the, on the foundation that he created. What we're going to talk about in our next program, and we're going to talk about the importance of allies because we all need them. And so Anthony and Gabriel, and we will be getting to put some things together about notable allies and people. We will be asking you to talk about uh, an ally or two in your life who has made a difference because we all need somebody. And, you know, we, we, can, we can walk in people's shoes. We can understand. We can be a part of it because we care and because we have seen and we have heard and we know. And it's just like that wonderful Jewish lady who couldn't find her own bus when she was marching, but she, she organized the transportation and the people that made the peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and all that stuff. We need good people and good people who are different from us in terms of race, culture, and any other way can be very meaningful in our cause. So we're going to talk about that, the importance of allies to us and what they mean to the cause, et cetera, et cetera. So that will be our next program. And please do go to Lynn's Think. Lynn, I hope you're going to send out another email because I want to come and I've already forgotten what it is because I was so busy thinking about this. So anyway, send out, make sure you publicize this. Cheryl, anything we can do in terms of the Multicultural Affairs Committee, you call on us. Thank you, everybody, for coming. And for being open to listening about learning about somebody that most of you'd probably never heard of in your entire life. And why do we want to hear about this old guy? Well, I hope now you know why you do and that, that it's important. In the spirit of learning and, and understanding Blind Pride's flagship podcast, Pride Connection, runs tomorrow night at 10 p.m. on ACB Media One, and you can get it on all your podcast catchers or at acbmedia.org uh, right after it airs. And it's talking about intersectionality as that dirty word that it's becoming, and a lot of issues that are facing the disability and the LGBTQ community as they are aging into needing assisted living, and more medical intensive home care units. So it's a really good episode. I, I encourage you to go listen to it. Please check out Sunday Edition. This coming Sunday, we will be celebrating Martin Luther King Jr. with Mark Reichard, um, who won the Sunday Edition auction. And he's put together a really cool show. So check out Sunday edition. And last but not least, if you would like to support Blind Pride International, who is partnering with makinggayhistory.org, go check them out as well. You can go to www.bpi.gay and you can get some updated information or you can join us and help support the work that we're doing. 
You've been listening to Pride Connection, sponsored by Blind Pride International, a special interest affiliate of the American Council of the Blind. Please check us out at blindlgbtpride.org. Thank you.